Hello friends. Hello everybody. I hope you're all well. Um, welcome back. I'm sorry, I just took a little break because back to school. So uh, today we're going to discuss something in PEDS and obstetrics, which is now the recessive incompatibility. Kindly ignore the background noise. I'm really sorry about that. Uh, okay, so recessive incompatibility. So I'm going to be writing as I teach because I guess that's the best way I learn. So basically, what is recess incompatibility? So when someone usually comes and tells you, hey, hi, chap, you know my blood group? Okay, I don't know if that's a conversation starter, but <laughs> hi, uh, my blood group is A positive. Then you say, oh, okay, mine is B negative. So that A is the antigen found on your red blood cells, like your blood group. But that positive and negativity now shows your recess, your recess status, such that if somebody is recess negative, it means that on the red blood cells, they do not have that antigen. However, if somebody is recess positive, they do have the antigen of the recess factor on their, on their red blood cells. So why is this really important in pediatrics and maternal health? This is important because especially if a mother is recess negative. If the mother is recess negative, this means that she does not have the antigen on her red blood cell. So, let's say there's a group of two women. There's a sensitized woman and an unsensitized woman. So, sensitized woman is one who has already been exposed to recess positive blood and she's recess negative. While an unsensitized is a woman who has not been exposed to any recess. She's recess negative, but she's not been exposed to any RSS positive blood. So for example, let's say we have, let's start with unsensitized. So unsensitized women, usually when you do the ANC profile, a woman first comes and then uh, she comes in the first visit or 20 weeks, then what you're supposed to do is anti. So you're going to do a GXM. So you're going to do grouping and cross-matching, meaning you're going to find her group, her blood group. Let's say her blood group is B. Then you find her recess is negative. So after that, what you're going to do is an antibody test. So if you do an antibody test, you're going to check if she already has antibodies against this recess factor. So if you find out it's negative, that means probably, you see she's, she's unsensitized, meaning she's never been exposed. So you'll find probably it's negative. So, but you see, the thing is, usually when uh, antibodies are starting to form, it starts with IgM and IgM antibodies do not cross the placenta. However, IgG will cross the placenta. So now this IgG is what we're looking for. And ideally at 20 weeks, the mother still has IgM if you're trying to do the antibody test. But at 28 weeks, at this stage, maybe the IgM will have formed. So you'll do an IgM. You're going to do an antibody test at 20, visit, at 20 weeks or first contact. And then also at 28 weeks, you're going to do an antibody test. At this rate, you'll find that maybe either IgG has already crossed the placenta. And then now it will have already formed. So at this stage, they're going to be, uh, if it's negative, then you're going to give the mother something called anti-D. And now we usually, we usually call it droga. So this anti-D, what does it do? Okay, so we have uh, recess negative mom and we have a recess positive baby so if this is a recess positive baby what does this anti-d do so if there's any mixing of blood meaning any of the red blood cells come into contact with the mother's blood what will the anti-d do anti-d is going to come and destroy any of these blood any of these red blood cells that have come in contact so that the mother does not form any immune reaction towards these red blood cells of the child so what is the importance of, we had talked about having the surface, the antigen, the recess antigen and not having it. So what's important in it? This means that if uh, the mother has the, has the recess positive, meaning that if the body comes and it sees this, anti, it sees it, the body recognizes and says, ah, okay, this, this, is, this is okay, this is usually what is found in my body. But if it's recess negative, I mean, uh, yes, but if it's recess negative, meaning the body is like, this is something we've never seen. I've never seen this in my body. So what does it do? It forms an immune reaction. It will form an immune reaction against this. So what does it do? Usually forms antibodies.
exactly. So these antibodies now is what are the antibodies against the recess factor. So we've talked about that. This is now unsensitized mother. So we've said at 28 weeks, we find its antibody negative. So what we're going to do is we're going to give her the regum. The rogam. This is an IM injection. We're going to give 300 micrograms. And we've talked about how it works. So at this rate, as you do that, this is, is going to be an actually a good thing so that you can now deliver the mother at 38 weeks or 37 completed weeks. So this is for an unsensitized woman. But now for women who have been sensitized, what does it mean to be sensitized? Uh, to be sensitized means, uh, let's say you have already been exposed to blood that contained the rhesus positive. For example, this mother is uh, rhesus negative. Then she had a miscarriage. One. Let's say she had an ectopic pregnancy. Two. Three, she, has abdom she had abdominal trauma while pregnant. So with this miscarriage, the ectopic pregnancy, abdominal pregnancy, any molar pregnancy, obviously there'll be mixing of blood. And in that time, the mother realizes, eh, okay, so this is something that's different, especially if the child was rhesus positive. So the mother realizes this is something different. I need to form antibodies for this thing because I don't want it in my body again. So they have already been sensitized. So meaning, when you're taking the history of this woman, for every woman rather who comes in pregnant, you have to ask, okay, do you have previous miscarriage? Did you have an ectopic pregnancy? Has there been any abdominal trauma? Especially if they're recess negative. So in this stage, you'll realize, okay, this mother has been sensitized. That means even at this stage, will it, it really make sense for you to do antibody tests because you know this woman has already been sensitized. But you'll still do because you don't want to be a quack doctor who is just assuming. So you'll do an antibody test, you'll find it's positive. So what do we do? For You see, if you do an antibody test and it's positive, even if you give the anti-D, it will not help. You get because the function of anti-D is supposed to help a woman who is rhesus negative and, and has never been exposed. That means this woman already has antibodies against the rhesus positive. So even if you give anti-D, it will not help. So what do we do? So this woman um, is antibody positive and then you have decided, okay, there are already antibodies being formed. There's nothing we can do. There's something that is called amniocentesis. This amniocentesis will check the level of bilirubin. And you ask, why are we checking the level of bilirubin? Because, you see, once the child has been exposed to the antibodies, these antibodies of the mother will go to the child's red blood cells. And then now it will destroy them. And now when these red blood cells are destroyed in a process known as hemolysis, they're going to be broken down. And when broken down, it forms the bilirubin. Bilirubin now is broken down from red blood cells. So the bilirubin will accumulate. That is why amniocentesis checks the levels of bilirubin. Because the levels of bilirubin, if there is a little bit of breaking down, it can know this is not that serious. But if the bilirubin levels are very increased, you can know this child is at risk of hydrops vitalis. I'll explain hydrops vitalis later. So the red blood cells have been broken down. Bilirubin has increased. When bilirubin is so increased, there is something that can be called connectoras. Connectoras is when now this bilirubin is deposited in the basal ganglia, which is very serious considering there is so much bilirubin that it has gone and packed into the basal ganglia of the brain. So the red blood cells have been broken down. That's why we're going to do the amniocentesis. Amniocentesis is going to tell us what level of bilirubin is happening, how severe is this thing. So there's, there are levels to it. There's level 1, level 2, and level 3. Rather, there's a graph that is usually drawn. It shows zone 1, zone 2, zone 3. So zone 1 is for women who the bilirubin is just a little bit low. But level 2 is where the levels are moderately moderately increased. But for this one, I'll, I'll explain our management. And then level 3 is where bilirubin levels are so low, are so high, such this, this child is incompatible with life. So with level 1 is watchful waiting. So we want to deliver this baby. Level 2 moderately increased. That means, at, you see, lung maturity occurs between the stages of 28 weeks and 32 weeks. So immediately there is lung maturity. We deliver this baby. Because we don't want bilirubin levels to be so high and to kill this child. Level 3 is now incompatible with life. Why is it incompatible with life? So bilirubin levels are increased. With increased uh, bilirubin levels, anemia because of the hemolysis. Anemia occurs. Anemia can lead to the heart failure. 
heart failure occurs heart failure will cause kidney failure it will cause liver failure it will cause ascites so hydrophobicitis is basically hydrops meaning water this child is just full of water because of all this the heart failure the kidney failure all systems will fail so this this is why this child is not compatible with life so those are the three levels so you should know a sensitized woman and an unsensitized woman so and for the sensitized woman after delivery we've given the rogam at 28 weeks gave her 30, 300 mg um uh, and then so delivery has occurred so when we deliver the child we have to also check uh the level the resus status of the baby if the child is resus negative that means there's no need of giving the woman uh another rogam you get but if the child is resus positive meaning these antibodies will already be formed so we're going to give her another dose of im of 300 micrograms i hope that's okay and especially if a woman has was resus negative and has been sensitized let's say she had a miscarriage you can also give her you will give her also the antd so you'll give antd but you're going to give micro 50 micrograms so if a woman has she has a post ectopic pregnancy post miscarriage post molar pregnancy post abdominal trauma you're also going to give them the rogam if they are resus negative so you're going to give them 50 micrograms so this is all about the resus compatibility So always remember an unsensitized woman and a sensitized woman always remember the dose of rogam we're giving always remember the how, what does it do what does it do it does not enable the mom to form an immune reaction against the baby then you know if the mother is sensitized what are we going to do um we're going to do amniocentesis we check the level of bilirubin and the levels level 1 level 2 level 3 especially if the child is level 2 we can also increase lung maturity by giving now corticosteroids and then now but if it's an unsensitized woman we can deliver at 38 weeks so i hope you have enjoyed and i hope the resus incompatibility is a little bit easier for you thank you bye hello Uh hi everyone I hope you all well. So today uh we're going to do obsgyn and in the obs we're going to do amniotic fluid disorder and the one I'm going to focus on is polyhydramnios today. So what is polyhydramnios? Polyhydramnios can be defined either clinically or you define it on ultrasound. So clinically is when the liqua the liqua amni is more than 2 liters which is now 2000 ml. But then When you take it on the ultrasound it's when the deep the deepest vertical pocket is greater than 8 cm and the amniotic fluid index is greater than 25 cm we'll come back to that all that so polyhydramnios what is the etiology of polyhydramnios polyhydramnios can be caused either the, by the fetus it can be caused by maternal by fetal causes and maternal causes so for maternal causes the two main ones are multiple pregnancy so with multiple pregnancy eh watoto wanakojua inajaza amniotic fluid that's one two and maternal dm so how does this occur for maternal dm so with maternal diabetes the mother will get hyperglycemia and you know usually because of that mixing there's also fetal sugars will increase and with fe- when sugars increase what causes there's osmotic diuresis so osmotic diuresis polyuria so mtoto anakojoa sana when they have a mother who has dm so remember for maternal usually mat- multiple pregnancy and maternal dm so for fetal fetal they can also be many so one fetal for example they have congenital anomalies one can be cleft lip with cleft lip uh the child has inability to swallow so with inability to swallow a lot of like what remains there and two duodenal atresia also inability to digest and all that so there's also open spina bifida so all the fluid will come from the meninges into now the amniotic fluid uh, comp- that sac the amniotic sac also hydrops fetalis with hydrops fetalis the patient has with this uh the patient has cardiothoracic abnormalities fetal cirrhosis fetal infections like with torches pavivarus so this is also associated with hydramnios so patient who also have neck masses as long as the child is not able to swallow that will give you is an indication for like polyhydramnios like now the spina bifida so there's transudation from the meninges if there's esophageal or duodenal atresia preventing swallowing of liqua so a patient who also has an encephaly it's associated with this uh so now with this one what happens there is absence of fetal swallowing reflex kama una reflex ya kuswallow is anhydramnios and also they were saying at him 
there's a possible suppression of antidiuretic hormone. So with antidiuretic hormone, now the suppression, there's going to be excess urination. And because of anencephaly, now things like that, the disorders that are associated with anencephaly, they have, they have exposed meninges. So now with that, there's transudation, so polyhydramnios. And also one of them can also be, uh, I saw one placental cause is a malignancy, like the choreo and geoma of the placenta. So it causes uh, hyperplasia of the blood vessels and connective tissue, which results in increased transudation. So the, they just, there's a lot of accumulation of the liqua. So with that, it's going to be greater than two liters. So how does a mother you suspect with polyhydramnios present? So one, on general, I'll start with general exam, then abdominal, then VE. So on general exam, because of like the way it's so big, the mother might present in respira respiratory distress, the mother may have palpitations, and the edema of this mother will be a lot, and they'll also have varicosities. So don't forget the edema and varicosities. So per abdomen, what do you see? Usually, if the mother tells you, okay, I am 20, 23 weeks, then you find the fundal height is 27. So usually find the abdomen is greater than the period of amenorrhea. The skin in Akwanga very shiny and you see a lot of striae on the abdomen. And also abdominal girth, meaning like you take around the abdomen. The, abdom the abdominal girth is increased. And because of polyhydramnios, when you try to do the Leopold's maneuver, you cannot get the, the fetal uh, parts easily, one, two, and also if you're trying to, because you can't find the fetal hearts easily, even finding the fetal heart rate will be a problem for you. You can also have fluid thrill positive because now there's fluid in the abdomen. Uh, so what do you find on pelvic exam? So on VE, uh, the cervix could be dilated, which could uh, accommodate one centimeter, and it has tense membranes, and the cervix is pulled up. So with that, you those things, and then you also have to ask from the history, okay, did you take your, your IFAS? Uh, is there a history of abnormalities in your family? Things like that. Uh, do you have DM? Uh, what is your arrest status? Things like that also have to come out from your history to know, okay, to need your index of suspicion. So what investigations would you do? So investigations first, as in, let's start with the basic, you do sugars. Is this mother uh, diabetic? So that could be one. Two, you want to check in that uh, book of hers, uh, what is her recess? Because that could also cause poly polyhydramnios. Um, three, we want to do an HbA1c, maybe the sugars were bad. We want to do a full hemogram to rule out any form of uh, infection that may have occurred. So for this mother, on ultrasound, ultrasound I feel like is the most important for this. Okay, history, physical exam, yes, but also the ultrasound can help you. So you check the deepest vertical uh, pocket. So when you look at, uh, at an ultrasound, ever just go check out an ultrasound, and then you just look at the, the amniotic sac. So with that, you just check the longest, like from the Jew, there is the post, the top post, the top most to the bottom most. So you just look at that, and then that can be measured. If it's greater than eight centimeters, then probably it's uh, polyhydramnios. The, the the normal is around because if you have oligohydramnios, it's less than two percent. So it will be around three to seven past seven centimeters. So now you check the lattice vertical pocket. Uh, hey, pocket. And then to get the amniotic fluid index, what you do is you divide the amniotic sac into four quadrants. And then you check vertically how much each quadrant is. So with each quadrant, let's say this one is 7, this one is 4, this one is 3. 7 plus 4, 11 plus 3 is 14 plus 8. 14 plus 8 is 22. So with 22, that's normal. But if you have 1, when you add all 4, it's greater than 25. That tells you that is polyhydramnios because the normal is 5 to 25. So if you have oligohydramnios, it's going to be less than five centimeters after you've added so what else and you also on ultrasound you can check for congenital anomalies that can, that can tell you all right this patient has congenital anomalies which is associated with uh, polyhydramnios you can also do alpha phytoprotein which is also increased in neural tube defects though like now i don't know if people do that in like a public setup so what are the complications that are associated with um with the polyhydramnios. Oh, and one thing I forgot to mention, maternal, one other maternal thing is if you have multiple pregnancies, all, that means three children will be cojuaring a lot, polyhydramnios. So don't forget that. So what are the complications? Complications usually are during pregnancy, during labor, and during puperium. So with during pregnancy, this mother is at risk of getting preeclampsia.
this mother is at risk of getting preterm labor because of that constant enlargement of the abdomen it can stimulate and the child is because now you see the child is floating inside there's a higher risk of malpresentation uh, during labor there's premature rupture of membranes there's postpartum hemorrhage and they can also be called prolapse because now as you do like the rupture of membranes the cord can also come down with it that's why whenever you do artificial rupture of membranes always stick your hand inside and like just wait such to see if there's cord prolapse or not and then during preparium, obviously there's going sub-involution because when you've stretched the uterus so much, it cannot like it's hard for it to also go back into its normal shape. So sub-involution could be a cause. Sepsis can also be uh, an effect. So, what do you do to this mother when you suspect this patient has polyhydramnios? So you've done your investigations. Okay, let's let's see. Let's just go in an orderly manner. So you history and physical exam, you think, oh, okay, this mother, sorry for that back noise, this mother I suspect has polyhydramnios. So what are we going to do? First of all, the mother comes. So what are you going to do? You're going to do your normal investigations. You're going to do your sugars. You're going to do your HbA1c. You're going to do your full hemogram. You're going to do your ultrasound. You're going to do your, if they've not done the restors, you can do restors. So if it's normal, if there are no abnormalities, everything is normal, there's, there's a drug called Sulindac. You give Sulindac 200 milligrams BD. So what does Sulindac do? Sulindac uh, it reduces urine output. So with reduced urine output, you do, you're going to have reduced now the liqua. However, if like now all that you find the child has congenital anomalies, it depends on the country that you're in. Like some countries can co can co can go for uh, termination of the child. Others will like have you go through the whole the whole pregnancy. So you've, you've given the mother Solindac, she's at 20, depending on the gestation you give her. And then if the mother is responsive to that medication, so that one can go to term, then you can deliver. But however, if the mother is not responsive and depending on the gestation, what do you do? So the mother, you've given her Solindac, 200 milligrams, and I assume this drug is very expensive. So if she's less than 37 weeks, you're going to do less than 37 weeks or greater than 37 weeks. So if she's less than 37 weeks, what do you do? You can do amnioreduction until delivery. Amnioreduction means you remove some part of uh, some amniotic fluid until delivery. Then you deliver. However, if she's greater than 37 weeks, you can decide to just deliver the mother. So you can do artificial rupture of membranes and then you deliver the mother. So that is how basically how you, you do polyhydramnios. What is important is your history, your physical exam, and your ultrasound, and knowing the risk factors for getting polyhydramnios. And the management, remember Solindac, you remember also if she's responsive or not responsive, if she's, so with that, depending on gestation, what do you do? You can do amnioreduction, or you can do delivery, depending if she's like 37 weeks, and you, you can wait for her to reach like 37 complete weeks, so you can say that she's a term, then now you can deliver. Always remember the amniotic fluid index. Always remember the deepest vertical uh, pocket. Always remember the complications that polyhydramnios can cause. Because if you can prevent or if you can control the polyhydramnios, she won't get all these other things which are associated with it. So that is polyhydramnios. I hope you have understood or gotten something out of it. All right. Bye-bye. Hello and good, good morning, good evening, good after, whatever time you're listening to this podcast. So today I want us to go through abortion, abortion slash, uh, yeah, well, just abortion because now abortion and miscarriage are usually used interchangeably. So when we hear of abortion, what describes abortion? Abortion is the expulsion or extraction of a fetus from its mother before viability. So if it was in the USA or other countries, developed countries, it would be around 24 weeks, 20, 20 to 24 weeks. However, because we're in Kenya, we usually use 28 weeks. So anything that is below 28 weeks, ideally in Kenya, is considered a uh, miscarriage. So uh, abortions can be divided into spontaneous or induced. So under induced, it can be legal or illegal, whereby now, let's say, you've had a fetal death and then you want to, to induce an abortion. However, for spontaneous ones, like now these ones are usually uh, classified as the miscarriages, and there are usually five of them. There's a threatened abortion, there's inevitable abortion, there's incomplete, there's complete, there's missed abortion, there's septic abortion, and then now there's a somehow recurrent abortion. So what I'm going to take you through is 
I'm going to differentiate all of them based on things like bleeding, things on like what you'll see on ultrasound, things that you'll see on abdominal exam, things that you'll see on vital signs, and also especially the OS. And also we're going to go through a little bit of the management of these different patients because basically we don't, well, ideally we would manage all of them the same way if they're either hemodynamically stable or unstable, but there are certain things that we have to add when it comes to the specific types of the miscarriages. So usually we also need to know what are the causes of the abortions in the first trimester, the second trimester, and the third trimester. So usually in the first trimester we should know that it's chromosomal disorders like genetics that usually causes the the, the abortions in the first trimester. In the second trimester it's things like uh, uterine abnormalities, cervical abnormalities like now cervical incompetence, things like fibroids, things like adhesions. And you see the ones that cause uh, the things in the, the abortions in the second trimester also are pushed to the third trimester. Also always remember that any medical uh, disorder in a woman, uh, let's like DM, thyroid function, disease, all of them, cardiac disease can always cause an abortion. So these are things you always remember. Infection can always cause an abortion. So you should always know uh, the things, especially in the first trimester, we've said the most common cause is chromosomal disorders. In the second trimester, things would be like now, uterine and cervical uh, disorders, and also medical uh, maternal diseases. And also, yeah. Also, don't forget that smoking, drugs, premature rupture of membranes, all these things will always also, would also lead to an abortion. So when we are talking about threatened abortion, inevitable abortion, incomplete, complete, missed, septic, and the recurrent abortions, we also need to define what is each one of them. Especially now, let's start with the threatened abortion. This is where the process of abortion has started. However, recovery is possible. So if you find this mother, you they'll come um, maybe in the first trimester, in the second trimester, they'll tell you, Dr. okay, I'm having spotting. And always tell a woman who's pregnant that bleeding is not normal in pregnancy. Not bleeding is not normal at all. It is not normal in pregnancy. So she'll come and tell you, Dr. I'm not feeling well, I'm having, you know what, even if it's spotting, it's still abnormal. You should always have that checked. So she'll come and say, okay, Dr. I'm not feeling well, I have some bit of spotting. Okay, so what you do, you usually find that, um, General exam, they're usually okay. Then you find for abdomen exam, you'll find that the period of amenorrhea and the size of the uterus is usually the same. And then you'll find, uh, so what do you do? And you find the os is closed. So this is a good sign. So you do an ultrasound, you'll find that the, 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 the you'll find a viable, a viable fetus in the uterus, so which is good. So how are we going to manage this mother? So usually what we do to these mothers, we can do, uh, bed rest and you also just tell them not to do a lot of work and then what else can we do to this patient also for these patients uh, there are people who can be given progesterone progesterone now you see the function of progesterone in pregnancy is to maintain the pregnancy so sometimes you might think okay probably this is not being well maintained so you can decide to give the woman progesterone though however like the evidence is not that well supported but there's indication of having these women having progesterone so what makes prognosis poor for these patients is that if you have things like uh, lowering of the heart rate of the child or things like reducing in beta HCG, this can tell you that this is a poor prognosis of these mothers. Then let's move to inevitable uh, miscarriage. This is now a type of abortion where the, the process has started and where continuation of pregnancy is impossible. So how would they clinically present? So for these women, they'll still have features of like a threatened miscarriage. They'll have like pervaginal bleeding. They'll have low abdominal pain. And then they'll have, for them, it's an open os. So how are we going to manage this patient? So always ensure, for everyone who's bleeding, ensure that she's hemodynamically stable. Then after that, now wait. This is now we're going to assist in the expulsion of this fetus. So if the mother is less than 12 weeks, what we can do is dilatation and evacuation. Or you can also do suction, evacuation. Just remember also, suction evacuation is one which is commonly used in HMOL. If she's greater than 12 weeks now, we can do an oxytocin. Oxytocin drip, and then now the fetus can be removed. After that now, we can go to a complete miscarriage. This is when the products of conception are completely removed. So the woman will present, present with uh, also pervaginal bleeding. She could present with low abdominal pain. Then, okay, check hemodynamic stability. When you come to the abdomen, what do you find? Because it's a complete abortion now, the products have been removed, you'll find that the period of amenorrhea and the, the fundal height is going to be smaller. 
and then the uterus will be smaller than the period of amenorrhea, then you'll find the cervical os is closed. This helps also differentiate between an incomplete and a complete such that for complete abortion, you'll find that the os is closed, but incomplete, you'll find that it's open. So how do we manage these patients? You always do, again, maintain hemodynamic stability. Then you also always have to do um, an ultrasound. I feel like doing an ultrasound, even before you do any procedure, is always paramount. Because you might think, okay, she's bleeding, she has an incomplete abortion. Then you find you have a viable fetus yet, which you could have saved. So instead of just like trying to remove, why don't you do an ultrasound before that? So we manage these patients by, since the uterus is empty, then you can evacuate if it's not empty. And then always remember for these women, you should always know their recess factor. If they are recess negative and they've had an abortion, you always have to give rogam, which is uh, anti-D, which is always, it's always, always very important to give women anti-D if they are recess negative and have had an abortion. So let's go to incomplete. This is where the, not all the entire products of conceptions are expelled, but instead part of it is left inside the uterine cavity. So what you'll find, the, the woman will have, she'll tell you, okay, Dr. I came and I had a history of thing, things that passed, and then she'll have low abdominal pain and they'll have persistent vaginal bleeding. And then now on internal, uh, on abdominal exam, you'll find also the uterus can be smaller than the period of amenorrhea. You'll find that the os is open. You'll also find um, you can also find products are still being expelled when you do your speculum exam. And for any woman who is bleeding, don't ever just do a digital exam. You always have to do a speculum examination. Uh, an ultrasound, you'll uh, you'll see that products of conception are within the cavity, meaning that the the, the fetus is not viable. So you see, the problem with incomplete abortion is that it can complicate into one of the others, which is now the septic abortion, which is actually more dangerous. So what do we do? Uh, we can decide to do, uh, if she's less than 12 weeks, we're going to do something called uh, manual vacuum aspiration, which is MVA. And then if she's greater than 12 weeks, uh, we can do, you can evacuate DNC under local anesthesia. Then you must make sure that every time you remove something from a woman's body, it always has to go for histology. So I remember what we did in uh, in the hospital is that if a woman comes with incomplete, we can decide to give her now misoprostol. So the function of misoprostol is just causes makes the uterine ripe. It can dilate the uterus more so that you can do MVA. So we were giving 200 micrograms uh, every four hours. Then over the next day, now you'll find it's fully dilated. We can do the MVA. Yeah. Now we move to uh, Mr. Boshon. So for Mr. Boshon is where uh, the fetus has died and remains. Uh, inside the uterus for a period of time. So such things now that the woman will present with is that all of a sudden her features, the early features of pregnancy have re, uh, have subsided. You'll find that she has a brownish vaginal discharge. She'll have also things like that, like retrogression of breast changes and then cessation of uterine growth, things like that. So uh, you'll see an ultrasound will show either an empty sac early in the pregnancy or absence of fetal cardiac motion and fetal movements. So for these women, how are we going to manage them? So again, if the fetus is less than 12 weeks, I know 12 weeks is like if she's in the first trimester, what are we going to do? Either she'll spontaneously just expel the, the fetus or two, you can also now try and remove it medically. So you can do misoprostol. You can give 800 milligrams in the posterior phonics and you can repeat after 24 hours. Usually you'll find that expansion has occurred in 48 hours. You can also do suction evacuation. If it's greater than 12 weeks, uh, you can induce. So you can give oxytocin, you can give misoprostol, and you can also do dilation evacuation. So for misoprostol here, you give 200 uh, microgram tablet is in the posterior vaginal phonics every four hours, maximum of five. Then oxytocin, the normal, you put 10 to 15, 10 to 20 in 500 line at 30 drops per minute. So the last one we can do is septic abortion. So for septic abortion, this is where now there is clinical evidence of infection in the uterus. So usually this occurs usually after, let's say, um, those illegal, the clandestine abortions. So for you to say, okay, this is probably... Uh, a septic abortion, you'll find that the temperature is elevated in the woman, which is greater than 38 degrees. Two, you'll find that she has an offensive uh, vaginal discharge. And three, now she'll have other features like low abdominal pain, she could have dysuria, things like that. So uh, most of them occur after incomplete abortion. So the most common uh, organisms are E. coli, Klebsiella, staph, strept, 
but usually most of them are mixed like you'll have a mixed picture so uh, the clinical features so what will you see when you look at her you'll see she usually lo looks anxious or she looks like she's in distress then when you check her vital signs her temperature is elevated she could have tachycardia she could have tachypnea then she should she, she might also look like she's she could have uh, chills now if she's in shock she could have now hypotension then when you do a local exam you'll find the tenderness especially on the lower abdomen um, she could also have impaired mental state then now when you do a pelvic exam you'll find a vaginal discharge which is which is very purulent and it's offensive then the uterine the uterus is there's uterine tenderness and it has the there's a boggy feeling if there's any pelvic abscess so when we try to like classify we can classify them the septic abortion grade one grade two and three where grade one is localized into the uh and uh, is it localized in the uterus while grade two goes spreads but it does not go into like the peritoneum so it goes into the parametrium the tubes and ovaries however now grade three is now when we have generalized peritonitis so what investigations are you doing? You go in, you'll do speculum exam, you find, okay, this is this prolonged discharge, there's uterine tenderness. So what do you do? do you take a high vaginal swab, you can also do culture. And then you also have to do sensitivity for the antibiotics that these ones are going to be for. Uh, you can also do urinalysis and you can do blood. You'll do a full hemogram, you can do CRP, you can do urinalysis. You have to ensure that this woman, we don't want her to give her any, we don't want her to go into a state of peritonitis. So if you do an ultrasound, you might find these, uh, might find the, these retained products of conception. You might find free fluid in the pouch of Douglas, which is now posterior, which will tell you, okay, maybe there's a pelvic abscess. Uh, you'll do ca blood culture, you'll do electrolytes, you'll do CRP. You can also do a plain X-ray if you suspect bowel injury, because now usually those people do it via until a state where you can do injury to the bowel. What are we mostly concerned about in septic abortion? In, I mean, yes, one, the sepsis. She could go into septic shock. Two, hemorrhage. Three, injury. There could be injury to bowel because now of the clandestine things that are being done. Four, there is now spread of infection. It will go into the parametrium. It will go into now become generalized peritonitis. And with septic shock comes acute kidney injury. With acute kidney injury, now with also um, with infection and sepsis can come DNC. So this mother, they are very, they are at risk like now because of the spread could lead into atelectasis, atelectasis and now cause acute respiratory distress syndrome. So these patients are very vital. These are patients we really need to take care of acutely. So general management of a patient with septic abortion. One, admit the patient. Two, take your different uh, swabs, high vaginal swab, you take your blood cultures, you take drug sensitivity. Three, vaginal exam is done to note the state of abortion, to state of abortion process. Four, how, so principles of management is one, to control the sepsis and to remove the source of infection and to give supportive therapy. So what drugs are we using? So ideally, the ones have been the triple therapy because now this is a mixed, this is a mixed uh, picture. You can use now aminoglycoside like gentamicin unless she has acute kidney injury. Then you can give metronidazole and you can give uh, uh, penicillin. Those are the three. So you have to ensure that this patient receives first, if she's hypotensive, fluids. Ensure the patient is always hemodynamically stable. You have to give antibiotics for this patient. And then now you have to take care of where the infection is coming from. So what are we going to do? We evacuate the uterus. Uh, so some, some of them, if it's like really bad, you can do laparotomy and actually even do hysterectomy if the procedure is really bad and if the spread is also really bad. So this means in general, for all abortions, you need to be able to identify the type of the abortion based on clinical features and based on examination and how they are managed. Well, they have usually the same form of like general principles of therapy, but each one, each and every one of them has how they're going to be managed individually. So post-abortal care. So what are you doing in the post-abortal care? One, you have to give contraception to this woman because after an abortion, you don't want them to get pregnant immediately. So you do... Um, family planning services for them. Two, you also have to talk to them about about the different forms of uh, family planning that they can do. Two, emergency treatment of any complication. You see, if any complication of the abortion, you have to treat any complications that may come after you've treated the abortion, like infection, hemorrhage, you have to treat. Three, 
you have to make sure that also the mother has been linked to other reproductive health services like she's educated on STIs also you have to also involve the the partner because these things are multidisciplinary and all of them even the woman who is who had the abortion and also the partner are also affected because now these women can also might need counseling because now the loss of a child is not uh, a small thing so that's basically on this is just like a small summary of the different types of abortions so whatever you can go deep you can you should go because i probably have given you 20 percent i've just done a summary then now you can go deep into the other forms all right see you in the next podcast bye bye hello everyone i hope you're all doing well and keeping safe with the pandemic uh so today we're going to do gestational trophoblastic disease which encompasses uh encompasses a spectrum of proliferative abnormalities of the trophoblast which is associated with pregnancy so while now persistent GT, gtd would now be referred as gtn which is now gestational trophoblastic neoplasia so gtd is classified into hmol and then now the rest are going to be classified into GTN. Now the invasive mole, choriocarcinoma, and placental site trophoblastic tumors. So I'll take you just through the summaries of the, the most important that you should know is H-mole. And yes, the H-mole is the one that you should know, Kabisa, and maybe choriocarcinoma. Because most women now, this is also a differential diagnosis for bleeding in the early, in early pregnancy. So what is a H-mole? So HMOL is just best regarded as a benign neoplasia of the chorion with malignant potential. So it's where uh, changes occur in the chorionic villi. So in the chorionic villi, things can happen like proliferative or degenerative changes can occur. So this one is also, it's very high among black people. So what is the pathology of a HMOL? So usually this is because of, let's say, uh, the ovum does not grow essentially so now there's formation of that now there's hyperproliferation of those cells and then now these happen also they are transferred from the maternal blood to accumulate in the villi and the villi don't have blood vessels so now this results in distension of those villi to form form the vesicles that's why you have formation of vesicles in the h-mole uh, so now the h-mole is divided into two there's complete and incomplete so with complete is that there's no formation of any parts of the embryo like there's no fetal parts that are involved However, when complete, you'll have also the vesicles plus uh, a bit of the parts of the, of the fetus. So how does a mother present? So usually she'll present with pervaginal bleeding, one, and low abdominal pain, two. And then there are excess symptoms of pregnancy. This is because now this is a disorder of the beta HCG. So if you have uh, greater than the beta HCG levels for that gestation, you'll have now these things now cause uh, exaggeration of the features of pregnancy like now she'll have hypermesis uh, gravidarum uh, they, the mother could also say she's expelling things which look like vesicles okay she won't say vesicles but she'll tell you things that look like small small dots and plants something like that grape like things yes they look grape like and then history of quickening is absent quickening is when the mother starts to feel the the fetal movements so when you examine the mother what do you see so the patient will look more ill than they usually are. They, they, should, they can be pallor because of the uh, vaginal bleeding. There could be features of preeclampsia and also features of hyperthyroidism. So you should also, whenever you're taking the history, you should rule out hyperthyroidism and you should also rule out features of preeclampsia. So when you come to the per abdomen, what do you see on per abdomen? You'll find that, you'll find because of the bleeding, or the formation of the vesicles now, the, the period of amenorrhea and the size of uterus are not okay. So it's really larger in the period of amenorrhea. Then the, the, the uterus feels firm, elastic, doughy, because now absence of amniotic fluid sac. And then fetal parts will not be felt, and then there's absence of the fetal heart rate. So that's an abdominal exam. When you do your vaginal exam, what do you find? You could find vesicles, you'll find the osses open, and you'll find maybe uh, the vesicles are pouring out. And one thing that is common among the, the women who have HMOL is theca, theca lutein cysts. So always remember that. Always remember beta HCG levels will be exaggerated. They, they can be associated with uh, uh, theca lutein cysts. So one important thing that you should know is that for every gestation, there is a certain amount of beta-HCG that you should have. However, according to Dutas, uh, now Dutas 8th edition, 
there is a certain number like 100,000 that they give that can tell you okay this is diagnostical beta hcg so you should, it's important that you know for every week every gestation there is a certain amount of beta hcg that you should have but now for the dutas it tells you that 100,000 will tell you okay this is beta hcg so once you've done what kind of investigations are you doing for this mother so first of all you do a full hemogram you have to do research for this mother and you have to do abo you have to do thyroid function test for this woman. You have to do liver function test baseline. You have to do liver function test. You have to do and thyroid is important because now they may present with thyroid disorders. You do UCs for this mother, and then you have always have to do an ultrasound. So what does the ultrasound show? The ultrasound shows that there is a snowstorm appearance. So what do you decide to do? Okay, you think okay, my impression is uh, H mole. So what are we going to do? So we do qualitative and quantitative testing of beta HCG. So qualitative is where you take the urine and quantitative is where you take the serum. Now that's where I was telling you about the 100,000. So there's rapidly increasing values of beta HCG. So there's greater than 100,000 milli international units per ml, which is seen in molar pregnancies. Uh, usually plain abdominal x-rays are not that done, even CT and MRI, because now the ultrasound will help you and your history will also help you. So when you get this woman, what are your differential diagnoses? Like if they are no vesicles, you can say it's a miscarriage, you can say it's an ectopic pregnancy, you can even say it's a fibroid. So what are the complications that are associated with these women? One, bleeding. Two, it can become, because now it's a benign, it can become malignant and become choriocarcinoma. Sepsis can, uh, sepsis can occur for this woman and preeclampsia might occur also for this woman. So... When you find out, okay, she has H-mold, what are we going to do? Um, in a previous podcast, when I was doing the miscarriages, I talked about suction evacuation. So this is the mainstay that you do for these women. So one, uh, you do suction evacuation. Two, you must give supportive therapy for these women. So the management now would be suction evacuation for these women. You can also decide to do a hysterectomy, but this is when... Uh, the mother, let's say, has completed her family, or if the hemorrhage is too much, or if there's perforation, then I can do a hysterectomy. So for all these women, we must follow them up for at least one year. So if we're following up, what are we actually doing? So initially, what we'd want to do is to check the beta HCG levels for this woman. You do it every two weeks. Two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, until the, the beta HCG is at zero. Then after that, now you can do monthly for six months. Then now you can even do until the end of the year. So who would you want? And always ensure that you do a chest x-ray for women who have a H-mole. Why? Because there might be metastasis. And the first metastasis is usually into the lungs. So what are we going to do? We do uh, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks until it's at zero. And then now four to eight weeks until, and then you do monthly for, for at least for six months. But follow up these women for, for women who have had uh, like a H-mole. And the minimum amount you can follow them up is for, for six months. And then if they have GTN, you follow them up for one year. If they had meds, you follow them up for two years. I hope that's clear. So uh, when do we de decide to do chemotherapy? Like for this woman, let's say a woman has come, she had a H-mole, you've been following her up, and then it's at zero. You decide, okay, so this one is okay, we can just keep following her up. But now, when we decide to do chemo is one, if it's rising, the beta HCG are rising in four to eight weeks. Two, when there's no reduction in about 10 to 12 weeks. Three, if there's post-evacuation hemorrhage. Four, if there's metastasis that has begun to occur. And five, if the woman is unable to come for follow-up. Like let's say she lives in Habasweni and you, your hospital is in, uh, let's say, Thika. And she can't come back for follow-up or she lives in Turkana. So for her, you can start... Um, chemotherapy and the drug we use for chemotherapy is methotrexate you do it on day one day three day five and day seven so you do three cycles so methotrexate one milligram per kg per day just always remember the indications for doing chemotherapy always advise these women not to get pregnant for at least one year because now you see if she gets pregnant and the beta hcg arising you won't know whether it's a correct carcinoma or whether it's actually the 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 pregnancy and also, she thought she should use contraception. So IUD is not contra contraindicated. 
combined pill depending on whether let's say she has migraines let's say she has hypertension or let's say she has a history of dbt it depends on what type of contraception you want to use <coughs> barrier methods can also be used so now if there is persistent uh beta hcg elevation that's when now we become a gestational trophoblastic neoplasia which becomes now the invasive mole the chorea carcinoma and placental site trophoblastic tumor so for placental site it is it's very rare so and for these ones um, there is persistent low level of serum urinary hcg and for these patients uh, it's not responsive to chemo so for these ones you just have to do hysterectomy it's important to note that there are certain risk factors for malignant change in these women so like for one the age of the patient if the patient is greater than 40 or less than 20 irrespective of the parity of these patients multiparity is also a risk factor uh, uterine size if it's greater than 20 weeks and a previous history of molar pregnancy also the fact that they have took a feca sorry fecalitin cyst is also a risk factor so when do we decide to do uh, to do one drug and those ones combined drugs so who gets one drug for giving one drug like methotrexate alone they have to have low risk and for you to have low risk it's meaning like initially your beta hcg was less than 40000 uh the duration of illness was less than 4 months and you have no history of prior chemo and this metastasis is limited to the lungs and vagina however for high risk you have to use combined therapy which now like it's just the opposite of the ones i've mentioned where beta hcg is greater than 40000 duration of illness was greater than 4 months metastasis has gone to the liver and brain and failure of prior chemo so the drugs that are used in combination is imaco e stands for etoposide m for methotrexate a for actinomycin c for cyclophosphamide and v and o for vincristine so and also it's important to know that radiation if you have brain meds radiation will be the best and also intrahecal uh, dose of methotrexate to prevent hemorrhage so this is really i've not gone i've just done the h molecabisa but i feel like you should also know the rest like the choriocarcinoma and the persistent uh the invasive mole and the placental site for plastic tumors even though that one is very rare and it's important to know that anytime you take a sample from a woman you always take it for histology i hope this has helped you and i hope you have understood something bye bye